Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and on this week's episode, we're thrilled to be joined by Pejman Ozad, co-founder of Pair VC, a really unique pre-seed and seed firm based out of Palo Alto. Today, Pair has scaled to over $800 million in AUM and has built such a powerful engine to help early-stage companies. As many regular listeners of the show know, we often like to highlight managers that have different backgrounds and stories leading to their careers in venture capital. I think of all our guests, Pejuan best epitomizes how someone can overcome so many obstacles to be successful in the industry, as he not only immigrated from Iran with little to his name, but the catalyst that got him into venture was working at a rug store. During his time at the rug store, he was able to meet some of Silicon Valley's best VCs and entrepreneurs and use his curiosity and ambition to learn about the industry and ultimately become a startup investor. His story is one of the most remarkable ones in the Valley, and I really think you'll enjoy hearing him tell it. During our chat, we went through his backstory as well as all the learnings he's had as an investor over the last couple decades and what has gone into building Pair to what it is today. I really think you'll enjoy the conversation with Pejman, so let's get right into it. Samir Kaji is the CEO and co-founder of Allocate. Allocate and Venture Unlock are independent of each other. Any statements or references made by Samir or his guests regarding third parties, investments, or securities are solely their views and opinions and are not intended as investment advice or an endorsement of such parties or securities by Samir, his guests, or Allocate. Allocate or its clients may maintain relationships with or investment positions in guests, third parties, or securities mentioned in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Pejman, it's so great to see you, and thanks for uh, joining us today. Good morning, Samir. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's exciting. I was was looking at my calendar from last week. I was just utterly excited to see you here. And I think before we start, I just want to say congratulations for building Allocate. And it's pretty amazing what you have done and your team in a short period of time, building the brand and the team and the access you're providing. It's just pretty incredible. I appreciate that. And it, it, it's actually a great segue because I would say the same to you in terms of the platform you've built. And this is never an overnight success. It takes a long time. And, and I, I do think a great origin point for this conversation is to talk about your story itself leading into tech and venture. And I was having a co- talk with a few LPs the other day. And one of the things we mentioned is just emerging managers and some of the folks that have started firms over the last 10 years coming from such different and varying backgrounds. And you epitomize that. So for those that haven't heard the story, I'd love to hear how you got into technology and maybe a little bit of the background that drove you into what you're doing today. I um, started in 1992 when I arrived here. So I was actually homeless in 1992 in this town. If you look at the, the profile picture of my Twitter, it's me sleeping in an attic above a yogurt shop because I I was sleeping in my car, I was sleeping outside, and I begged the owner of the yogurt shop to let me sleep in an attic, and I slept there. But something magical happened in that attic that changed my life forever. I pause here, and I go back before we, we continue the story from that attic. I, I was born and grew up in Iran. When I was 10 years old, revolution happened, and then two years after, the Iran and Iraq war happened for eight years. So... You know, I experienced as a teenager the darkest side of humanity. And for, for long, my life and everybody in my country was survival, especially if you're a teenager. I remember Iraqi jets were bombing us. Just go, go to school, 
come home, do homework and wait for them to come. But now I look back, I think it made me stronger to really survive that, that attic. Survival was the meaning of my teenager life and many people like me. I was a very good soccer player. I played for um, big clubs in Iran and I went to the German school in Iran. So I spoke German. The owner of the club asked me um, to come and translate. He started a magazine. So I started to translate German to Farsi, but I became really good at it. I started to write my own articles and you know, everybody loved the way I analyzed soccer. And all of a sudden they gave me Iran's most popular sports radio talk show. And, you know, at the age of 18, I used to bring the LeBron James of my country to my show. It was just amazing. I think I was in heaven. Imagine at 17, 18, you can do these things. I um, got accepted to the college. After two years, I decided I have to leave Iran. My parents left Iran before me. They went to Germany. I stayed in Iran. I served in the army. In Iran, like every male should go and serve in the army. But I was very lucky because I was a good soccer player. I played for the, the army soccer team. I left Iran. I went to Germany. They gave me a scholarship to continue education and play soccer. A few weeks into it, my brother who left Iran before me when he was 15 years old, and that's American dream. He was denied visa multiple times. And this was um, early 90s. It was so hard for Iran to come to U.S. Like, even engineers and doctors and businessmen cannot get to America. He took me one day. I said, why? I, I don't want to go to America. I don't speak the language. I got an opportunity here. But he said, just go get a visa. Don't go. And I went over there. And the, the woman who was a counselor uh, of the embassy interviewed me for 45 minutes. And at the end, she said, I remember exactly the words. That, I don't know why, but I want you to see my country. Give me your passport. So in a very, uh, I don't know, dramatic way, I decided to come to America with no plans. Normally, you have some plans to come. So I, I just arrived in this town in San Carlos because my uncle used to live here. And you know, it, was, it was difficult. I left a really kind of the great career in Iran. I left university and Germany. I, had, I didn't speak the language. I only had $700. But the biggest problem was I was in love with the girl in Iran. And I thought, okay, I'm going to lose her, so I better call her every day. So this is 1992. Um, you, there was no WhatsApp, no internet phone, no Skype, nothing. So I had bag of quarters I'm here every day going to this payphone in downtown San Carlos and calling here every day. I don't know, it was like 3 $4 per minute, which is so expensive. So $700 was gone, and I didn't know what to do. So I found an Iranian car dealer. And I bought a 1973 Chevy for five payments of 150 bucks. And I found a, a job at a car wash in San Jose. So I was driving every day for an hour, washing cars for 10 hours, and come back. So again, it was just my, my life was just washing cars. I think emotionally was the hardest part because I could have leave, left the next day and go back and have a radio talk show or go back to Germany. But something was telling me just keep going. By the way, I was the best car washer the world has ever seen. I wash cars like nobody else. My English improved. I, I, get, I got the job at the yogurt shop, which the photo is there. And that was a time that I didn't have money. I didn't have a home. So I, I asked him if I could sleep in an attic. This is a real attic. The, the yogurt shop still is there in Redwood City. It's above a yogurt shop. It was a storage for cups and you know napkins and so on. So my life was, again, survival, waking up, run the shop till 6 p.m., go to college, take a shower at the college, come back, study, 
the magical moments was one of the nights I was studying, I saw an advertising for the rug gallery in downtown Palo Alto. And being Iranian, we all grew up in Iran, although we don't have much knowledge, but we think we know something about Persian carpet. So I called the owner who actually was an amazing businessman in Iran and uh, he built an empire, one of the biggest industrial family in Iran, Amiti family, interviewed me. Actually, the, the government, the post-revolution, did nationalize his asset. So he came, started from scratch in America. Rug Gallery is one of the businesses they had in addition to real estate and some global businesses. He interviewed me and then he rejected me right on the spot because he asked me, have you sold rugs, furniture, cars? I said, no. I said, okay, you're not the right fit. So I, I insisted that how can you, you know, deny somebody you haven't met? It was a pause and he just, he said, come the next day. And I went over there. He hired me on the spot. You know, later he told me that I really liked that you didn't give up and he wanted to meet me. I, I remember the day he hired me, he took me outside. As you know, I, you still can walk by Medallion Rug. is beautiful, amazing gallery. It's on University Avenue. And he said, you know, listen, at the end of the street is Stanford University. You can go get PhD in business, but your real PhD in business with me here. So whatever I tell you, do it. So next day I put a suit and tie. I went there to sell rugs. I said, no, 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 you're not selling rugs. You just uh, bring tea and flip carpets. So for a while I was flipping carpets in, until I proved myself and I ended up uh, selling rugs. And again, I became, I think I'm the best rug salesman again. I sold a couple of million dollars worth of rug, which you know, most of our companies won't achieve that even in their lifetime before they die. But Persian rugs, you know, you come, said Pageman, I bought a home in Menlo Park with my wife. I'm looking for the dining room rug. And you and I, with your wife, we start to look at rugs. And then ultimately, we bring the rugs to your home. 95% of transaction happens at people's home. So by going to people's home for a few years, I realized every single customer is either founder of a big tech company, top venture capitalists, even if they are bankers and lawyers, they just serve tech community. And I was in awe. Not because they were wealthy, mostly for me, businesses are, you build this and sell it. I never knew that you can build massive companies, create jobs, create wealth based on knowledge. And I felt that I'm just so lucky to be part of this community. Maybe this is a chance in my lifetime. And I decided I want to be one of them. And I started to ask a lot of questions. This is late 90s. There was no TechCrunch, no YC, none of these things. And But... I had access to so much knowledge. And these were not my clients, they were my friends also. I was hanging out with them, selling rugs, Sunday, having barbecue, and asked a lot of questions. How do you give term sheet? What is, I mean, just like, and it was, and, and I think credit to Silicon Valley, nobody judged me that Iranian guy coming, selling rugs to my home, asking about startups. I, I remember, anyway, I, I don't know if you want to have a question. I pause here, but I can tell you how we started to, but one of the stories I want to tell you, I, one of the days, a guy came in, very well-dressed, well-spoken. He said, um, I'm, I'm looking for rugs, and we look at rugs together. And I said, I'm Doug Leone, bring the rugs to my home. So I, I knew who Doug Leone was at that time. So I went to to his um, home and a hard negotiator. But at the end, I said, Doug, I can, I, can, I can help Sequoia Capital. He said, how? He said, you know, I have access to so many Iranian PhDs and uh, he said, okay, I come Monday morning to your office, tell me how more. And we ended up putting an event together with the senior partner Sequoia Capital. The reason I bring it up was Doug didn't doubt me. And, you know, that 
that relationship and trust led us to both of us invest in Dropbox early on, six, seven years after. But I think that's, I actually think this is a DNA of, of, of Silicon Valley, which is, which is, I mean, tech is a community that they are, they're, they're, they give before they get and then judge people. And for me, it was just astonishing. Imagine if you're selling rugs in Los Angeles and you go to Steven Spielberg's at the end of selling rugs to Steven Spielberg. Said, By the way, Mr. Spielberg, I can make movies with you. And I think it's just kind of uh, really odd, but I did it. And then, you know, I, uh, myself and the ownership of Medallion Rug, we started um, investing, we, we pulled capital. I told them we have this, this access. So we started to invest in, this was at a time that angel investing was really fashionable. We started to invest in startups. And my God, we had such a terrible track record. I mean, just like so embarrassing how we did it. But, you know, I, I learned the world around me one by one. This is, if you remember, if you were going late, early 90s, or I mean, late 90s, early 2000s, if you want to raise money, Sand Hill Road was your only access. I mean, you had to go over there. There was no not much happening, and you, you had to know somebody to get you there. I think venture capitalists were not leaving their office. They were not wearing jeans, no T-shirt. It was like Wall Street in the 80s and 70s. I somehow broke that. I brought the entire Sequoia Cap to the rug gallery with founders, Persian music and food. People really loved it. And, you know, I think there was, I created a marketplace that at one side was my access to uh, amazing top tier VCs and the other one entrepreneurs who were looking for advice and capital. And in addition to knowing venture capitalists, I knew founders, top VP of engineering of massive big companies, and I were bringing them as an advisor. So the word got out that I have a really good deal flow. And, you know, fast forward, we ended up being the first investor in Dropbox, Lending Club, and I and I continued to invest in Gusto, AppLovin, SoundHouse, some amazing companies, but a lot of scars on my body. And then it came, I made money, I started to invest my own capital, but I realized there's an opportunity to build an institution. And I pause here before I get to pair. It's, it's, it's a great, fascinating story. And there's so many nuggets to extract from there. But, you know, some of the challenges that you had growing up, which really kind of drive, I feel like you enter the world of always finding something challenging to do. And I was going to ask you, like, going from an angel, starting a fund. But I want to maybe reverse a little bit and think about all those learnings. You're with Doug you know, in his office at, at Sequoia, and you're pitching this idea of being this kind of marketplace in a very different way with your community and having the foresight to understand that you had this unique world that you lived in where you were seeing so many people and building these networks. What did you learn, I guess, from folks like Doug and maybe your angel investing that guided you in how you wanted to build Pair when you started in 2012? You know, Doug and a few other people really believed me very early on. They didn't judge me. And, you know, it taught me that I can believe in future entrepreneurs with similar background and and take the risk and believe that everything is possible. And that's kind of genesis and DNA of Pair today. We partner with founders that are even students and that have gone and built you know, massive big companies like DoorDash. So th- that was a learning from that. But the other one was I learned that if you have a very focused and very well-defined value, you can participate in an industry like venture capital, which is well-guarded. 
and definition of venture capitalists have always been from Ivy school or computer science background. But I came up with my own strategy and I felt I can play in this you know, community. For me, I knew this is like playing in NBA, but I won't be Steph Curry, but I can be the best agent. That's how I started it. And I doubled down on the value of the network I built. Obviously, after 23 years, I learned the business and I, I built a great team that I learned from them. Whenever I talk to people that are starting new firms, you know, one of the questions is, you know, why are you doing this? Like venture capital is building a company, right? So you're starting a firm, which is building a company. And we'll get into how the company has evolved. And I will call it a company over the, uh, the many years, because I think it has become a true platform, which is launching these new products and services. But maybe talk about why did you feel like this is what you wanted to do? And how clear was the vision of what Pear was going to be at that time? Around 2009 and 10, I was doing professional engineering. I realized founders raise a million dollar. I'm an angel investor with a few others. There are a couple of firms involved. But founders are left alone right after that, although many people claiming they do seed investments. It was not much help. And either they didn't have time or didn't have expertise. And I felt there's an opportunity to build an institution to serve founders day zero. The question was, can I walk to a room full of founders and claim I'm your best partner? And the answer was no. Although I had a great track record, everybody knew me. I had a really good deal flow. But I knew in order to be a top firm, I need a partner who has built product, shipped product, and you know built the company. So I reached out to my current partner, Mark Hershenson, and I didn't talk to anybody else. I chased her for four years. I told myself I either build this with Mar or I continue doing engine investing. And you know, Mar and I, we know each other for 23 years. I funded her husband's company, Danger, in the year 2000. And then I was very lucky to invest in Mars second company in 2003. I actually syndicated a $2 million round then. And I remember I had to take Mars to people's home in Palo Alto and then offices. It wasn't like today that you go on AngelList and you click and you wire the money and you had to get checks by hand. But by doing that, I got to know Mar. but she's brilliant, smart, driven, with principles. She's a very good human being. And we became really good friends. So for four years, she said no, and uh, I said, don't start your fourth company, come and join me, until I changed strategy. In 2012-13, I said, it's okay, don't don't need to partner with me, but why don't you come and meet founders with me at Cooper Cafe in downtown Palo Alto? And she said, okay. I said, you're an entrepreneur, they're an entrepreneur, share some knowledge. So she was coming like 30 minutes a day, and then 45 minutes. I think two months down the road, she was full-time uh, meeting entrepreneurs. So I won. So we started to build the firm in 2013 together. We want to build the best seed farm ever existed. And we want to build the firm that outlasts two of us. And we want to help entrepreneurs build massive, long-lasting, profitable company. Mar and I, we are being and Yang. I'm a college dropout. She's Stanford PhD. She started three companies, successfully sold all three of them. Actually, never worked for a tech company. I think she has 14 patents. I have zero patents, but I have a lot of scars on my body. And I, I think the the respect we have for each other's opinion and the complementary skills really was the foundation of pair. And then we started 2013 with the 
$50 million fund, and I can tell you more. But the vision hasn't changed since then. Stanford Business School teaches a case about us, which we are really honored. Normally, they teach a case about Sequoia and uh, Boeing. There's an email in 2009 I sent Mar, and I said, okay, why did we get a home? And an office looks like a home next to Stanford and bring incredible um, entrepreneurs, something magical happens. That hasn't changed. We expanded that of the product offering, but that core is the same philosophy. You mentioned something that I want to unpack a little bit further. You said the mission was to become the very best seed fund in the world or seed firm in the world. And, and I'm curious in what that actually means if you deconstruct that. You can build the best team, best services, but if you don't have the performance, it doesn't mean anything. So for me, the best seed fund is consistently return 5 to 10, 20x every fund. If you can do that, then you become, belong to history. But you know, I can build all these services if I cannot fund seed the next category defining companies. I just don't think you can belong to the best of the people. You can play basketball if you're not champion of NBA or you're not Leo Messi, you're not world champion. Yeah, and and as you think about that, then from you know the standpoint of getting performance, that ties into certain things that are fundamental within a venture firm. It's sourcing opportunities, like being in the right room. Having the acumen to be able to pick the right opportunities, given the the sample set of companies you're looking at. And then, of course, it is things like you have to win and you have to have a founder choose you and then ultimately, in some way, help the trajectory of the company. And over time, that creates this flywheel where the probability of returning these you know great performance outsized returns becomes more highly probable and a function that gets stronger and stronger over time. When you thought about that, because as an angel investor, I feel like when people go from angel investing to starting a firm being institutional, they realize the bar is much higher. They have to think about all these different things. And to serve the founder and taking a bigger piece of the cap table requires so much more. Maybe you can talk about the key ingredients necessary to driving the performance and maybe look at sourcing and winning as how you built around those two things. Well, very good question. This is the question I wake up every morning and think about it the whole day because I think you need to keep thinking about it and improve. Pair has evolved. Even our name has changed. When we started the firm, Mar said, oh, Pagemont, everybody knows you. So why don't we call it Pagemont? Obviously, her name. So it was Pagemont Mar. But we both hated it to have our name at the door. We thought if you want to build a long-lasting firm, you want people to feel that this is their firm. So we ended up with Pair. That's a different story. I can talk about why we did it. But yes, in order to become a best performing fund, you need one to pick your own strategy. And I really believe there is not one only strategy that works in venture. You can be Y Combinator. You could be Sequoia. You could be Benchmark. You can be three exceptional firms, but three very different philosophy and strategy fund sizes, team, and composition. So I think you need to, to figure out where do you fit the whole ecosystem and can you win as the best firm in whatever you're offering. If you look at the life of the company from day zero to, let's say, an exit that's an IPO, I believe there are really good firms that they can help entrepreneurs post-product market fit. I do believe for zero to product market fit, Nobody has become the best firm. And if I ask you, who is the best pre-seed and seed firm in the world? Maybe there is no answer, or maybe there are multiple answers. Uh, we are aspired to be that firm. We are not there yet. That's the goal and mission of Pair, to become the best pre-seed and seed fund in the world. 
to fulfill that promise that we can help you in early stage get to product market fit. In order to achieve that mission, we have done a few things. One, we build our, our, the investment team. Our investment team have started and sold 10 companies to Cisco, Instacart, Zynga, Yahoo. It's a, it's a huge knowledge of starting from scratch and founders really trust our investment team. Plus operators who are coming from Uber and Facebook and Google with over decades. That's one thing. The other one, as you mentioned, we started to think about, okay, this zero to one journey, you have investment know-how operations, but what else they need? And the three and a half years ago, we did a survey among our founders and we asked them, what is the number one thing you need after you're raising the initial capital? And everybody was hiring. Obviously, multi-stage firms for long, they have their own talent services. I looked around, most of the pre-seed seed funds don't have a person to help with the hiring or they hire one person and that person mostly acts as a consultant, which is great. They're teaching, but nobody hires for them. And Mara and I, we decided to build actually a recruiting agency in-house. We, I spent 16 months, we hired a search firm. Actually, that search firm fired me because, you know, after 29 interviews, they said, okay, we don't have anybody else, but there is a guy who built the entire recruiting uh, platform at Instacart. And he took Instacart from 300 to 3,000 people. His name is Matt Bimbaum. He doesn't want to go a venture capital firm. I said, okay, this is the guy I should talk to. I met him and it was just very clear this is the person we need. So I made it the, my life mission to recruit him and I we did. So Matt joined us 16 months ago and he spent around three to four months. What does it look like to build a, a recruiting agency inside the seed firm? So And he hired three exceptional uh, senior recruiters. So we have four recruiters in-house on our payroll that if you come to pair, we hire your people. Since the last 12 months, we hired 70 people for our companies. We did over 1,000 founder candidate conversation with 80% uh, hit rate. It's just incredible. I actually think even if that's what it's pair can offer, we, we have a line of entrepreneurs coming to our firm to do it. And then we're building the same thing for go-to-market and fundraising software. So anything you need from zero to one, we're building this. So this is in terms of what the team look like. And one of the evolution happened with firm started with Mara and I, now we have a big team. So the firm is, is generalist, but with specialist investors. You talked about winning deals. Obviously, brand, background, reputation, how much you help. But founders really want to work with somebody who deeply understands your markets, and that's what we built. So we have Eddie, who runs our biotech. Vivian runs climate and healthcare. Arpan runs our fintech, and um, you know, Arash runs our AI and deep tech. And we have more people, and we're adding more people. So in addition to the know-how of building companies, the services we provide, and we have market experts who can help the companies. Then it comes to the sourcing, which I actually think most of the managers who start, they think about it less than anything else, which for me is the most important thing in venture capital. And the reason is if you see the best entrepreneurs and you have the ability to win them, this is a very good job. Otherwise, it's just like very, very hard job. So we spend a lot of time thinking about um, sourcing and how do you build a differentiated playbook. And my recommendation to anybody who started a firm or they're building about that is thinking about it in a very, very hard way. And this is beyond 
hanging out with other VCs and angel investor, going to demo days or going to conferences. That, that's given. Everybody has that. Where, where do you have an access that nobody else has? You, you have to come up with one thing. It doesn't need to be many things. But one thing that you see quality of entrepreneurs before anybody else is really key to build the firm. Yeah, I think that's right. And recently I had somebody on the pod, I think it was Mamoon at Kleiner, where we talked a little bit about sourcing. And one of the things he said is they don't need to see every single deal, but they certainly want to see the deals that fit their thesis and are the most interesting companies and entrepreneurs. And they track it. So when a company gets funded and it's funded by one of their competitors, and they have not seen it, they look at it and say, well, why didn't we see it? And how do we further refine our sourcing engine to ensure that doesn't happen again? Well, let, me, let, me, let me add one thing here. I think when Mara and I started to fundraise Fund 1, we went to meet Max Lefchin. He listened to us an hour. He didn't ask any question. At the end, he said, I believe there are only 15 companies created every year that matter. How can you be in one or two of them? I tell you, for 10 years, I'm thinking about it every day. And then that's how we are building this. And maybe that 15 is like 30, 50, but they're not thousands. And, and all of these things are hard to know at the time. So you're building these engines to increase the probability of finding those, right? That one company. And you've, you've been at some of those companies. DoorDash is a great example. We can talk about that a little bit later on this conversation. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about this winning. And one of the things that I've, I've talked to a lot of people about is creating this, something that's replicable, that's repeatable, and that creates the brand around it, allows you to win, allows you to you know, see things. Extracting from what you said of you know, helping companies with fundraising, helping companies with talent acquisition, at that zero to one level, just coming from the founder's lens, people are the most important thing, getting the right people that help chart the path of the company. But you as a company also are also hiring, and you've hired a lot of people across so many different capacities You've helped so many companies with talent acquisition at the zero to one. How did you think about your own talent acquisition? Paris started with Mar and I. So it was a combination, my network, my access, and Mar's deep expertise in building a company with PhD in engineering, so deep technical person. And then as we were building Pair, we felt we need more help. Like an example, if we were investing fund one in the company and that per, that fund need that new company needed an engineer. I was calling you, other people, people at Google, you know, anybody, but now we're passing it. So we built this infrastructure that provide this help at any given time. But when you look at people who have come to pair, we have never hired an investor before. That doesn't mean they're not good. It just, the way we do it is building companies from ground up. We need operators and founders who have been at early stages. Either you started your own or you have been so early with the product that you have that knowledge. That allows us to win because that's founders need. So if you if you couple that expertise and know-how and knowledge about building a company from ground up, add capital, add the services that we have, and add the reputation and background, it just really helps us to win deals. Plus the, the market expertise, the knowledge we have is sexo. So I just don't think you can pick one thing to win. It has to be a combination of variety of different things. And exactly what you mentioned, all of these things, when you do it for long term, it creates your reputation and brand, which 
I don't want to say it will be easy, but it makes it easier to win deals. And then going back, I, I think we look at, Mara and I, we hire people who think Perry is home for the next decades or so. So people think about venture capital long-term. They have the potential to lead this firm post Mara and I. Even when we hire an associate, we think, okay, where is this person in 10 years? Does she or he has the potential to be a leader here? So we always think about this as we're going. And I think we build one of the best teams in the Valley, just fulfilling that. It's a very mission-driven team. We work as a team. I might find the company, source a company, Mark close that company, and somebody else go help them. We just want to win. You know, I, it's like a soccer team. I play soccer. We just want to win. Everybody has different position. And if my team comes and page one, today you need to sit on the bench. We know you're a captain, but we don't need you. Just cheer for us. I sit on the bench. I just want... I still make Persian tea every morning at our office. I bring tea, whatever it takes. I don't think no job is beneath us. Yeah, I, I, I love that. The analogy of, you know, playing a position, right? And, you know, you think about some of the best teams in the world. You have individuals that are exceptional at something and the best coaches can put those people in the right places to succeed. You don't want Steph Curry being a, a power forward or Shaquille O'Neal shooting three-pointers, even though he's done a few of those. I really like that. One thing that always is something I think about when you know bringing on people, there are certain things that are table stakes. Intellect, have it in this industry, especially you know people that are smart, you know are diamondized, and there's so many people. But oftentimes you're looking for something that's even beyond that. Having worked with so many great founders, you know, you look at Drew over at Dropbox, and then some of the folks that you've hired. If you were to distill it down into a common defining characteristics of the most successful people, whether at funds or at companies, what have you seen to be that common bond? There are certain traits that everybody knows. Deep market understanding, understanding the customer and users, these are all given. But there are few traits that, you know, beyond that I see in some incredible entrepreneurs which I had the really the privilege to work with them and seeing them in the garage all the way to IPO. One is typically you don't see these entrepreneurs. Happy hour, you don't see them in conferences unless it's very, very necessary. They spend time with their team and their customers, users, nothing else. So that focus is really, really important. And then make things priority, obviously, that you know customer matters the most and your team and product. If I text Drew that Drew, let's hang out for coffee and tea, I might get an answer in a week or two. If I tell him, well, I was with Samir and I think he was having trouble with Dropbox, you know, paper, like maybe five minutes, three minutes, he gets back. That prioritization comes with the amount of focus that they have. The best entrepreneurs I have ever worked with, they're lifetime learner. As the company grow, they grow. You know, I remember Drew... One student asked him, one of our founders asked him, this was like a couple of years before Dropbox went public. Dropbox was a big company, I think going public at $10 billion. And the founder asked Drew, um, when you started Dropbox, you were a hacker. How did you become a leader of a soon to become public company? And he said, yes, I was terrible CEO. I knew I actually didn't manage anybody in my life, but I felt I can be a good CEO in five, six, seven, 10 years. And I started to ask questions, read and read books. And by the way, Drew has this 25 books recommendation that if you search it on Google, you can see it through house, the book recommendation, which I 
uh, suggest for any entrepreneurs and even venture capitalists to read it. So this ability to learn and and be a lifetime learner, you know, Drew is not only a CEO of a public company, he's on the board of Meta. Think about it. The best entrepreneurs, they show you a future that you have never seen before in a very articulate way that you can create vision. And this is beyond explaining a product or how big you can become, how much revenue you have, things that, you know, blows your mind. I always look for those people who come and surprise me. Best entrepreneurs, they give back. Uh, I, I don't mean financially. Obviously, financially, when they become successful, they do it. But throughout the journey, they give back somehow. They spend time with entrepreneurs. They spend time with whatever they can. They go to public schools, give a talk. They just, just feel this obligation that I have to give back. And the lastly, I think they're captain of the ship. You know, you're a very captain of the ship. You think about your crew and your passengers, and they're always thinking about it, and they're the people who leave last. Yeah. These are all incredible characteristics and you know, something that is very consistent with what I've seen throughout my career. And, and I want to basically pull on one of those threads, which is being this continuous learner, always adopting, always evolving, always getting better. And we're sitting here in October of 2023, 10 years roughly, to the moment that you and Mar started effectively a co-captain the ship for the last decade. Maybe let's talk about some of the learnings you've had that have been most impactful and have created these really interesting inflection points in the history of pair. Well, at the beginning was transition being an Indian investor for over a decade to being venture capitalist. The challenge is when you're an angel investor, you keep invest and you don't think about portfolio construction. When you have a fund and you have a portfolio construction, there are limited number of the companies you invest. So I started to put pressure on myself, train my mind that if I have a limited number of the companies, how do I pick and choose and let some go, which was difficult from the beginning. Um, so I trained myself to think about it. I think the most important thing that helped us to get here is listening to entrepreneurs and founders what they want. And we built the firm for entrepreneurs. We, we didn't build the firm for what's going on in the market. We didn't build the firm for what LPs think. We listened to the founders and we deliver exactly what they want. At the core of Pair is partnering with incredible entrepreneurs who are building long-lasting companies, but we innovate around that product always. And if if this product works, we put gas in the fire. If it doesn't work, we drop it. We, we just launched two years ago a program called um, Female Founder Circle. So we call for top female engineers who are starting companies and we build a community. My partner Vivian is leading it. We, we did the first one. We got 230 application. We picked 30. I think 10 or 12 companies came out of it. It's a, it's a community of best female engineers who leave their companies are starting it. It's speaker cities, workshop, mentorship, social events. And it was so successful that it's a thick cohort. This cohort, we got almost 1,000 um, application. The companies coming out of it are funded by Sequoia and this and Horowitz, Greylock. It was pretty incredible. The reason I, I brought it up is just you were thinking, what are the communities that we, we think they're going to produce the best entrepreneurs? And we are familiar with it, but we can give back also to them. So given Mars' background as a female entrepreneur, our team and the quality of the people we saw, we built this, which is kind of the magic now. It's the best feeder to our portfolio. So 
there, there are so many ways you can uh, innovate around sourcing, helping, marketing. I don't know if you know it or not, believe it or not, we have a gelato truck at Pair. It's maybe the best marketing things that we did. I, I built a gelato truck in, in Italy. And when we offer gelato, there's a line of entrepreneurs, especially students, come for free gelato. So you can, you can innovate always around things that you want to do. So, and, and, and I think, as you mentioned, we treat Pair as a company, as a startup, that you have a core product you can maneuver around and find, but we always listen to on. One thing I want to pull on a little bit further is this concept of a firm being a startup. And as a startup, you want to scale as a firm. It's a little bit different in many cases in terms of what scale actually means. But if we go back, fund one was 50 million, the most recent set of funds, a little north of 400 million. While it provides you with so many more resources, and this is true of any firm as they grow, they have more people, they have more things they can bring to bear to entrepreneurs is that as you get bigger, there's more complexity, the math gets harder. And within the LP world, there's the notion that, you know, as fund sizes get bigger, there is a reversion to the mean when it comes to overall performance. Curious in how you think about balancing between the scale that allows you to be really meaningful to founders, but also not too big where you lose the nimbleness and the ability to ensure those top-end returns? Our strategy hasn't changed since day one. So we are pre-seed and seed specialists, no matter what size fund we have. So all of our investment checks we write is either at pre-seed and seed stage. Obviously, we continue to invest. We typically, every fund we reserve over 55, close to 60% of fall one. So this fund, which is a, a lot bigger than the previous fund, which was $160 million, doesn't mean we're going to write checks at Series A, and Series B. If you don't know it, you're not good at it. I think we're very good at finding talents, get into product market fit. The reason we raised a bigger fund, I believe we reached our own product market fit after 10 years, which means we have our own brand and philosophy and value in the whole community. I think we built a sourcing machine that I believe nobody else has it at pre-seed and seed stage. We built the right team in terms of the investment and services we provide. So we decided that we can do more investments, certainly, and writing bigger check at seed, which we were not able to consistently write. For example, we had this sourcing machine that we saw companies at seed that were raising four to six, seven million dollars, and we were not able to consistently lead those rounds, but now we can do it and we have the team involved. It's all about what we have done, but doing more and writing bigger checks for at the seed stage. And we build other products to fulfill that. One of them is PairX, uh, which is our bootcamp for pre-seed companies. We invest around 20 to 30 pre-seed companies a year, which is 20, 50,000 to $2 million. But rather than Investing in 30 companies across the year, we batch them together now, and they have to go through this program, which is you, you, you go in it as a soldier, you come out of it as a Navy SEAL. Uh, it's an intense four and a half months. We meet you two, three times a week. You work with a senior partner. You have our go-to-market and talent team behind you, and we have a demo day. So that allows us to scale the help we can do. One of the questions we always ask, and MLPs ask that like, we have so many companies, how do you help them? So we figure out we can build this product that can help companies, attract them, 
And many people like it because a very small cohort is 10 to 15 companies per cohort. 85, more than 85% of them raise uh, at Demo Day, which is pretty incredible. And then, you know, at our Demo Day, we have over a thousand investors come pay attention only to 10 to 15 teams. So that's, that's a, again, an innovation around this investment that you can always do it. And we, I mean, even this product took us long to figure out what is the offering, how much money we should invest, what is the duration, do we do it once a year, twice a year? So you always learn from entrepreneurs what they eat. Just listening to you, it's so clear how much careful consideration has gone into architecting the overall growth and business model of the firm over time. And this is during, of course, a time where we've seen so many entrants coming into the market, scaling, and it's very difficult to get right. You and I have seen so much of the venture universe change. And even in today's market, even though the fundraising market is incredibly tough, there are more entrants coming in the market looking to build great firms. And a question I like to ask my more experienced investors that come on the show is that single piece of advice you'd impart to somebody. And maybe we take it through the lens of if the 2023 Pejman was to give a single piece of advice to the Pejman just getting started in investing, what would that be? Pick one thing that you can become the best in the role of what you do and, and then build momentum around it. You know, I started my career in the rug gallery, the network I had. I never claimed that I can provide product feedback in, you know, how do you build your cloud technology? So I started there, but I learned. I think I'm a lifetime learner. I, I still learn. I still pay a lot of attention to what's going on. But I, I actually think you have to become the best in what you do and pick that strength that you have. You might be an amazing salesperson. And you can build the best go-to-market strategy for early stage teams and then go around and do it. But I think the role of being generalist and not having deep expertise, it just really is very, very hard. And I think survival for any fund would be very hard. And I think whatever strategy you have, make sure that you have the ingredients and the stamina to become the best at what you offer to the founders. And you can be in any good companies. And as you mentioned, and I agree that there's not one strategy that works, but pick the one that you can, you can win it. Yeah, it does require brutal self-awareness and self-assessment constantly. And that can be very tough to do, but I do love the advice of figuring out what your strength is and really leaning into that. And of course, that will evolve over time as, as you've seen it with the firm. But Pishman, just going back to the, uh, the very beginning of our conversation, I just wanted to also, just uh, congratulate you for all of the success in terms of not only growing and scaling the firm, but also helping so many entrepreneurs. So it, it's been a fun journey to watch, and I really appreciate you being on today. Well, thank you, Samir, very much. I think you, you're doing the same thing with Allocate. I appreciate it. This was a great conversation. I actually learned a few things, a few questions you asked. I always go back and think about them, and I'm going to come back to you with more answers. That was great. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Pejman. To learn more about him and PearVC, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com where you'll find detailed notes on the show. Also on download, you can get the episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.